Hey there, welcome to the show. Wow, what an incredible week we have had. I got to tell you, um, you know, we did our simple seminar webinar. I got to say a huge shout out to all our guests joining us. What an incredible time. I just want to thank everybody for tuning in during the webinar, showing up here at our studio. What a great crowd and so many incredible people and a lot of good comments, you know. It's amazing. Every time I actually do one of these, I find out that I learned something and listening to the, you know, some of the trials and tribulations that people have being landlords and dealing with the LTB, you know, it's great to, to see other people's stories because hopefully it helps everybody that's involved to get a little better understanding on how you can actually be a successful real estate investor. And again, uh, special guests showing up. Uh, I just going to give a, a quick shout out to Mark and Kathy. Mark is a police officer. You know, we did do our, um, our our special event, obviously, for first responders. What a wonderful, wonderful turnout. And if you, uh, did, if you missed on it, just so you know, we do have our release. The countdown clock is still ticking. So you can take part in our newest release. And it is Tuesday. That's coming up in, what, what two days? Yep, 9 a.m. You can go to thesimpleinvestor.com and find out and get registered to be part of the newest release. So, wow, what an incredible, incredible night. And again, thanks for everybody for the follow on my Instagram account, the simple investor one, because, uh, yeah, we just, you know, we keep going up with users and, and it's wonderful. So, um, you know, got a great show plan for you today. Um, little special kind of thing near the end. I think everybody's going to have some fun with this, but we are going to actually stream into part of our seminar. Uh, a little bit later, but joining me now in studio, no stranger to the show. I've got Bryn Lackey joining me. And of course, you've heard Bryn here on the show numerous times. Your catcher column with the Toronto Sun and Bryn is also a realtor with Chestnut Park. And Bryn, welcome back. Thanks so much. Happy to be back. Always great to have you. You know, it's, uh, I find that you and I, you know, we talk as much off the air as we do on the air. So, <laughs> true. you know, and uh, <clears throat> so tell me, what, what are you, what are you seeing in the marketplace right now? Here we are, you know, we rolled through January and you know, numbers are kind of suspect, but I, I still think there's life. You no, know, I, even three weeks ago, I would have said, oh, that's optimistic. But, and I know we kind of mock anecdotal sort of stories, but I don't know, something's happened in the last couple of weeks where whatever it was that has sort of locked up the chessboard seems to be easing a bit. I see a little more optimism with buyers. I'm having people sort of, buyers that were in the wind now calling me saying, hey, you know, do you think we should get back in? I don't know. I mean, we'll see what happens, but it feels like there might be a shift underway. And I'm not sure why that would be. Well, you know, maybe it's their New Year's resolution. So they've, they've run the course of going to the gym. Of course, everybody comes out of the, the gate swinging for the first, <laughs> yeah, first of January, right? But, um, you know, I and, and it's funny, you know, for years and years and years, and, and, and especially when I was a realtor, one of the things that I heard a lot was, you know, come New Year's, people are always saying, you know, yeah, we're going to have to get a new home this year, or we're going to buy our first home this year. Like, it's actually one of those things, you know, uh, weight loss, um, you know, give up drinking and buy a home. It seems like those are some of the top picks. Well, I know I always have that week between Christmas and New Year's where I wonder where all these toys came from and, you know, where did all those dishes go? And I wonder how much of it is also, you know, looking around, trying to streamline your life and realizing maybe your house isn't working. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's a great point. Cause you know, the one thing, and, and you and I've talked about length uh, with this, with COVID was the fact that a lot of people realized their homes didn't work, mm -hmm. you know, especially cause they got stuck in them for so long and they just needed that little extra space. So that's why we saw a lot of, a lot of real estate paper being traded. So 
And 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 speaking of trading paper, you know, uh, month of January, definitely not the numbers that um, you know people are used to. But the funny thing is, is that prices still seem to be fairly steady. You know, and and not a huge, even though like we watch, you know, very very little volume. And and one of the reasons why, of course, not many listings. Yeah, I think I saw that. You know, year over year, January was forty five percent fewer listings this year. And then I think the prices, according to Treb data, I think it was 16% down. And I think that's interesting because that's quite, you know, a geographic area it's spread around. Mm -hmm. And I think when you've got so few transactions, those prices are reflecting, at least from what I could tell, most people were not selling unless they needed to. And most people were not buying unless they saw a real advantage to buying now. So I think the transactions we saw were, I'm not going to say they were skewed. They, they were very real. They reflected the market. But I think maybe, you know, we saw the blood in the water during that phase and now we're in some sort of holding pattern. Yeah. Well, you know, and one one of the things that, you know, when I when I crunch numbers, of course, we we start working with our averages. And the people that are sitting on the properties, and I'll I'll just use the north of, you know, one point five million, for example. So we're above one point five million. Not a lot of people really are thinking of moving. We saw the same thing, you know, April twenty twenty when COVID hit. Um, they just took it all off the market. So there's more transactions. And when we start looking at averages, you know, the average can drop because if you're working more condo transactions than you are detached transactions, you know, so this is where we see a little bit of, I think of a, uh, you know, a price drop is because, you know, this time last year, a lot of detached stuff was moving, you know, and so it kind of, again, skews your averages. It was moving. And I think there was also... Um, almost a tangible sense of FOMO in the year. At that point, we had had such a month over month increase that, um, you know, I'm thinking back to one listing I had where people were just like, they just tell me how much we need to pay, they would say, you know, because they were, we had seen it, the people who got priced out in September, you know, outbid in September, what they're having to pay in October was wild. So there was this thing of, I'd rather just pay now yep. and not be priced out until April. But of course, then things shifted around. Um, you know, it, it was a wild time for sure last year in this way that I don't expect to see again <laughs> in my lifetime. But um, I think, you know, some of that froth came off and we're seeing that absorbed in the, you know, decline we've witnessed. Yeah. Well, you know, when you think about February um, last year, I, I define it as what I call the pin market. It was because it was just this massive uptick, literally in a, you know, two to four week period where, we got word that the Bank of Canada was going to change mm -hmm. and everybody just ran mm -hmm. to the, whatever they could buy almost, you know, you, you know that there was speculators playing around, you know, that there was different people in the marketplace. And this is, this is, this is one of my concerns is that, you know, when people turn around, we're going to get some numbers and the numbers year over year, February to February are going to get real ugly. I think that, you know, when, when you're back on the show in, in sometime in March, hopefully, um, you and I are going to have this discussion and you, you know, it's going to be, oh my goodness, you know, prices have dropped 40%, but it, it, those were such unrealistic numbers and it was such a short period of time. It's like, if we took all the transactions, which by the way, last year was about 76,000 transactions in the GTA, which is banana. Like just to put in perspective, what's a normal year in GTA real estate? Um, should be about 90 to a hundred. So we, you know, we did have a big uh, drop, but. 2021 was 123,000, yeah. right? So so that's a huge cutback. That's the interesting part is when we're having these conversations, it's like, 
I think it's very hard for a lot of people to comprehend just how exceptional those two years of COVID real estate were. Just completely extraordinary. And we use them almost as if it's normalized, but it was categorically, it was bananas. Yeah. You know, for years before that, you know, 113,000 transaction was the peak year ever. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then you had 10,000 more transactions. And, you know, 106 was deemed to be an incredible year. You know, 90s was kind of in the average amount. And, and then, of course, you, we're going to get the the people out there that are going to be saying, yeah, but there's more population. You know, the area is growing. And sure, we, we, can, we can utilize that. But at the same time, when you see the difference, like I said, you go from 123 and you drop it down to like 75, 76,000. That is, that is massive. So I heard Benjamin Tal, the economist from CIBC, he described it as, you know, we borrow transactions from the future and that's what we're looking at right now. And I thought that was an interesting way of putting it is how much, when you look at the beginning of COVID, how much time we spent talking about pent up demand. Yeah. You know, we had all these people sitting at home much like, in fact, we've seen for the last six months, to be honest. Um, so you had all these people sort of fly out of the floodgates, uh, having been at home. Um, so there was an urgency to the market that we didn't see that obviously there were a lot of things at play, including really low interest rates. But if you think about it in terms of all of these people, they, you know, transacted now versus six months, 12 months, 18 months down the line. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it because I don't think demand is gone. I don't think people have left the GTA. I don't, you know, immigration hasn't changed. I think affordability has changed. Um, and so if a lot of people are now just sitting tight because all of those transactions happened in such a short window of time, that also is an interesting way of looking at this moment. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that fact because, you know, when you take a look at it, um, those people didn't get the home yet. You know, they're just waiting. And that's part of what I think people have to understand about these marketplaces is that the actual buyers didn't go away. They just decided to put it on pause and try to get a feel for it because we were, you know, we were spoiled with low interest rates, like to the point where people almost be, it felt like it became a norm. Like when you have two years of, you know, basically zero interest on something, mm -hmm. everybody thought that was the norm. And, you know, if, if people could go back, even in 2018, you know, we were seeing, you know, 4% interest rates on fixed rate mortgages. Mm -hmm. And so this, this is where, you know, I, I caution people to assess, you know, that when, when interest rates were so low, and by the way, folks, we're not going to be seeing those anytime soon. The Bank of Canada would literally have to drop their pants to be able to get there. <laughs> And, and it's not going to happen. I, here's the tricky part. I, you know, yes, there was the fact that we had a real once in a lifetime situation happening, yeah. right? The pandemic, no one saw that coming. Um, and then of course now I don't think anyone expected rates to rise quite like this. I don't think anyone, don't think anyone expected Omicron right in the midst of the recovery, you know, the invasion of Ukraine. Like, I think there are so many, um, outlying facts that are all sort of coagulating to create this moment we're in. Yeah, like we shouldn't expect 0% interest again. Like that was wild. You know, hopefully, you know, in inflation will be continue it sort of tamping down. Um, but again, even when you hear Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem come out, and I think that's actually part of why people are a little more optimistic right now is with the 25 basis point hike last week, the forward guidance seemed to be, you know, we're probably going to do one more and then we'll hold. I just find it so wild that anyone is banking at all on any of the guidance from the Bank of Canada right now, because we've seen this is the same body that said, you know, rates are low and they're going to stay low. So let's get out there and spend. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of, I think people just like to return to some sort of sense of normalcy, yeah. you know, one way or the other.
Yeah. And speaking of pause, we're going to go to a quick break. But folks, when I come back, I've got more with Bryn Lackey. So stay with us. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Simply Real Estate. Um, so in the studio right now with me, Bryn Lackey. Um, and just before the break, Bryn, you and I were talking about the Bank of Canada and the idea that, you know, they've indicated kind of a, as a pause. So but the big, the big thing about that is, is that we're still stuck in a higher interest rate environment. I mean, and again, it's all perception, right? You know, like if you, for some people that had mortgages at 14%, you know, six seems really attractive, but, um, you know, that hasn't had, happened in many, many years. So now when we take a look at it, the one thing that we've got is kind of a, an inverted curve. We're watching fixed rate mortgages lower than let's say the variable rate mortgages. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, and you've been here with Dave Butler from BM Select and, you know, Dave and I always make a prediction, right? And when we talk about mortgage rates and something tells me that the lenders out there, the big banks are going to start wanting to discount a little bit more. And some of my partners from the different banks have said to me, yeah, you know, we're probably going to throw a few deals out Springway because we want people to get back in the market. What do you think? That seems to be what's happening. Um, you know, I have a lot of conversations with um, mortgage brokers I know just to get their take because I always find it so interesting to see what information is being relayed to the consumer because it's it's always going through um, the perspective of these people. So I have a lot of those conversations and it seems to be at the banks, the five-year fixed was coming down. Now you're starting to see, I won't say deals yet, but you know, some less hideously oppressive rates in even like three-year fixed. So I think that that's shifting around. Um, what actually happens next? I think there's a lot of stuff happening with the OSFI, um, the super, what is it? The Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, I yes. think it is, which is a tongue twister. Um, so even just in terms of what they're going to do to mortgage qualifications, um, I think there's a lot at play that will help the rates be almost secondary in some ways too what's actually going on in the lending space. So I'm glad you brought up lending because one of the, uh, one of the things that uh, we were able to do during our seminar is we do try to help people with this. And, and, and I think it'd be a great conversation for you and I to have right now is people when they're, when they're thinking of borrowing for a mortgage, they want to buy a house, they need to borrow. And there's a lot of things that I think that people aren't aware of when we talk about your credit report or when mm-hmm. you're talking about debt, you know, we talk about good debt, bad debt. And, and, and of course, good debt, you know, in my opinion, is a mortgage because normally it's leading somewhere when you're owning some kind of property. Uh, and of course, bad debt, you know, um, credit card debt, you know, you know, I, I joke about that's, you know, this section of the show is sponsored by, you know, MasterCard <laughs> Visa because of the credit card debt. Um, but, you know, Bryn, what, you know, you've had experience where I'm sure that you, you, you look at clients and you know, you look at them, you think that they're credit worthy, but then the situation is when, when the broker deal, uh, you know, uh, you know, goes into the, to do the investigation, it's not quite what you think. I mean, I think we have a piece to do with financial literacy that we could all use a bit of a brush up on particularly young people, you know, everything's digital now, e-transfers, debit cards. You know, I think sometimes it's the dollars and cents of it all and the actual process that helps you have a strong credit report gets lost. Um, I have, I've actually had calls from mortgage brokers saying, thanks for this client. I can't get them anything. And I go, what do you mean? They have this amazing job. Oh, they don't pay their bill. They, you know, they're late on Rogers every month. They, you know, their visa is always late. Like those are the things that you can have a really great job and you can be making lots of money. But if that piece of the puzzle isn't there, good luck. Um, and I think that that's, 
I've been surprised in the past. I've also been surprised in the past when I find, you know, I'm talking to a client two weeks before closing, they tell me about this great new car they just bought. And I go, hold on, wait, what, what do you mean? Did you lease it? You know, where'd that, where'd that money come from? You know, like those are the things. And I think that, uh, you know, as professionals, it's this added layer to what we should be doing for our clients, which is ensuring that all of those pieces are covered in these conversations. Because I think assuming that everyone already knows this stuff is, is, a problem. Well, you know, and I, and I'm not going to tell all realtors to go out and get a financial education, but you could, but it doesn't hurt, yeah. you know, because here, here's the thing. So you're a realtor, you go out and let's say you're working as a, you know, working for the buyer and you're running around, you finally get something to, to stick, you know, you found a place, they put in the offer, it gets accepted. It's conditional on financing. And then you come back and the broker says, not a chance, right? So then as a realtor, you know, natural inclination would be, you know, you're going to blame the client right away. And as you mentioned, some people just don't know, you know, like if, if I asked our listeners, how many people know how to read their own credit report? There's a lot of people that don't, and they don't understand what the numbers mean and, or the scores and some of the effect on, you know, their debt that they take on. Like you said, don't go and lease a car prior to closing because the bank's going to pull your credit report and they're going to sit there and say, yeah, we qualified you for a $600,000 mortgage. You just turn around and lease a new Audi. Mm -hmm. You can't buy it now. Well, especially right now in this sort of high rate environment where you've got, where total debt service and debt service ratios really matter. Like they, a lot of these deals, they're coming together by the skin of their teeth in some ways because debt is just a facet of life, especially after years of free money. Like it was, in, it was intentional a lot of people to leverage themselves because it was considered a wise way of navigating this gift we were getting from heaven. Right. So, yeah. And you know, one of the, you know, one of the things I think that people have almost started to forget, was the fact that there's a stress test still. So you got to qualify for 2% higher, right? Like, you know, so yeah. right now, if you're going to take a mortgage, you almost have to qualify at like 8% interest. Right. And now I think they're also changing the exceptions banks were allowed to make for self-employed or, you know, um, high net worth people where you might not have strong income, but you've got tons of money in investments or you're self-employed and you're doing self-reported income. Like th that's really going to matter. And I think that the financial literacy piece is huge. She, you're, you know, harking back to the story you gave of the agent who does a deal and it's conditional on finance and then they go, wait, no, it's not going to happen. I don't know why anyone is putting pen to paper when you haven't had the most like real conversation with your client and said, talk to me about pre-approval. Has your pre-approval been, you know, you punch some things into a mortgage calculator on a website or have you had the conversation? Have you sent documents anywhere? Because if they have not sent, you know, their, their tax documents, their NOAs, to their mortgage broker, then they're dealing in hypotheticals and you should not be putting pen to paper. But I'm not sure, you know, it sounds like that's not the across the board way that everybody's handling this, but no, it should be. No, and that, you know, that's a great point. So, you know, how strong is your client? Do you have a firm pre-approval? And of course, you know, the more information that you provide to a lender slash broker um, is very, very important, you know, and and here, here's the funny thing is you, you brought up some very important things, NOAs. Okay. Notice of assessment. That's what the tax department gives you, you know, verifying your income, you know, T4s, that kind of thing. But a lot of people, if you're talking self-employed, you know, I, I've, I've had people come to me and their investors and they said, you know, oh, I haven't filed my taxes 
from last year. And then sort of like, well, what do you think of the chances of you getting a loan? Because the, the lending institution can't verify anything. They won't even talk to you. You know, they, they, you are sending, when you are applying for um, financing, you are sending in your NOAs, you're sending in bank statements, you're sending in proof that property taxes are paid. Like there are, there's no end of what they'll ask you for. And I think that that underwriting process, especially with, and I think this is a whole other topic we could go into, um, the fact that there has been a uptick in mortgage fraud as the markets have gotten tougher. You know, people are submitting fraudulent documents. There's no verification. There's no way for a lender to say, hey, I'm, hi, sorry, hi, I'm holding this NOA from, you know, client A and verify the income on that document with CRA. It's all self-reported and you're sort of looking there trying to figure out what's, you know, if everything is fine with the documents in front of you. So the underwriting process is now, um, I think, substantially more lengthy and involved. So all of those things matter. Like the idea of just walking up there and them throwing money at you, that I don't know why anyone would think that's happening. So you better have your ducks in a row and check it. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we talk about obviously buyers in that position, you know, we got to make sure that they do it. But, you know, I do put a little bit of onus on the realtor because, you know, when, when the realtor, if the realtor shows up with an offer in hand, it doesn't have all the knowledge, then you're actually, you're, you're affecting two people. Not only are you, you know, leading your buyer down the path, but you also just tied up somebody's house. You pulled it off the market conditional on financing. And that financing condition today could be, you know, five days, 10 days. And, and so it's a disservice to the industry when doing it. So again, folks, uh, my advice, realtors, you know what, kind of bone up on this kind of stuff. You want to be able to represent your clients, all clients involved the best that you can. But when we come back, folks, I'm going to have more with Bryn Lackey. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. So Bryn Lackey's here in the studio with me, and we've just been uh, kind of having a fun conversation. Um, last section there, Bryn, you and I were talking about, you know, the responsibility of realtors when they're representing a buyer, you know, looking at pre-approvals. I think it's great advice, you know, making sure that they have, you know, some education when we talk about financing. I think that that's a key element to being a professional in the industry. You know, now that we're seeing different there's different marketplaces that are appearing right now. You know, we talk about condos uh, quite regularly in Toronto mm -hmm. and there are, there's two mindsets going out right now that, um, you know, there are sales happening. We've got uh, a whole whack of problems in the leasing part of the industry because there's no vacancy, you know, we're, we're running very low inventory. You know, of course, everybody wants to blame the greedy landlord, but truth be told, it's just, there's no properties to rent. So, you know, it's, People are looking at it and saying, okay, well, I can charge $300 more because I know if I put it in the market, somebody's going to, somebody's going to want to rent it. Yeah. And I, you know, this is usually when I start to rail on about the landlord tenant board, because I think that it's <laughs> this, the beginning of all of it. I think that we have part of the conversation right now. And especially when you're seeing, you know, where homeowners are having to do their declarations for vacant homes, right? So we well, they, they, they oh by the way they extended you saw that they extended it <laughs> which because I think it was just eighty five percent of homeowners or you know, home, yes homeowners made the declaration you know in theory it's great but if what you're trying if the whole point of that is to incentivize people to take these vacant homes and put them on the market and I think the last time we spoke you really um, helped me see the counterpoint to that because I didn't think it was much of a big deal but I do agree after thinking about it that you know, intervening in a homeowner's right to do what they want with their house matters. Um, I would say that if the goal is to get 
homes on the market for people to rent so that it's a, you know, a more hospitable landscape out there for both landlords and tenants. I think the main piece beyond all of that is making sure that everyone's feeling like they're being treated fairly and they have a proper process to adjudicate those things. So I think we're kind of putting the cart before the horse. If we're still dealing with a 10-month backlog for hearings, if we're still dealing with, and especially now as variable rate mortgages, which half the time, that's what you're hearing about, landlords with variable rate mortgages where their expenses have shot right up, their cash flow negative. How do I get my tenant out? How do I charge them more? Like my costs have gone up. And there are a lot of landlords who are trying anything they can do to get rid of tenants. And it is not their tenant's problem that their financial picture has changed as the Bank of Canada rates have gone up. So I think there's a huge um, problem right now where there needs to be advocacy for both sides. And as long as you don't have that, as long as you're missing that piece, we're not going to see anything good happen in the rental market. No, and and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, during during my uh, my seminar, uh, one of the things that, you know, uh, a few people that are that are landlords right now, they said the LTB is broken. And I agree, you know, as as a real estate investor, as a company, we see it on a daily basis where, you know, you can wait eight months and you know to get a hearing and the problem the problem with this is the fact that if the landlord makes any errors on their paperwork you have to start all over but if a tenant makes a mistake they actually let the tenant change the paperwork and we've seen this Mm -hmm. during the process where they definitely are showing you know more leniency to the tenant but here's here's the problem the tenants living for free Okay. They haven't paid the landlord. Landlord still has to pay the mortgage. You know, look at it's the landlord's responsibility to handle their own financial uh, situation. I, I agree with that. Uh, there should be no landlord that has to say, I have to increase the rent because mortgage rates went up. Okay. That's your problem. You should have taken a fixed rate, maybe not surf the variable. You should have made a right, the right decision. Interest rates don't have any bearing on the agreement that you went in with a uh-huh. tenant, right? Like that's, yeah. that's the thing we're talking about a tenancy agreement. It, it's their home. Yeah, it's their home. But what, what happened was in in a lease, it does not say if the landlord's expenses go up, the <laughs> tenant has to pay for them. Okay, yes. let's, let's call a spade a spade. Yeah. But in the same breath, the tenant agreed to pay rent if they've got a roof over their heads. And right now, this is not the case when we talk about the LTB. They are flat out turning around and make drawing it out they did and enabling it completely and incentivizing it right so so why are landlords so pissed off well i'll tell you what get them into court within 60 days okay get a judgment within 60 days and look if a tenant doesn't want to pay then get them out it's only fair like if, if if they have the ability to pay and they're not paying that's a choice they're making a choice so the the landlord should have a choice to have them removed okay because that that's what the contract stated but if the tenant's paying, the landlord should not be able to kick them out just whimsically because they want to turn around and increase the rents. Okay. Your, your, your costs went up, suck it up. That's part of the business. Right. And I think that the reality is, however, there are a lot of people who for a whole host of reasons are now landlords and they have no business being landlords. They don't understand the Residential Tenancy Act. They don't understand the rules that govern when you can get rid of a tenant and on the on what basis you may do so. And they also didn't understand their finances, like their finances. If you honestly cannot carry the property you own without your tenant paying your rent, in theory, yes, of course, 
they should be paying the rent. But if you can't carry it without them, you have no business owning that property because this is the reality of being a landlord in this time. And it's this tricky part where, you know, expenses go up. Yes, people shouldn't have been banking on low rates forever. You have decided you're going to provide a home for someone. And in exchange for that home, you have this appreciable asset that will carry. So it's, it's an arrangement everyone has made. But if the landlord tenant board is not there actually helping navigate this process for the benefit of all parties, um, it, it's, it's broken and it is creating, it's further exacerbating a problem we already have, which is there is no one in the right mind who is just going to be casual about being a landlord and nor should they, of course. Yeah. But when you have young families, for instance, here's a perfect example. You have all of these houses, Riverdale, Leslieville, West End, where there are basement apartments, right? A lot of them have basement apartments, whether it's legal or not, whatever. Um, people could be putting tenants in there. If I had a client ask me, hey, I'm living upstairs. We have this basement apartment. I have a family. I would say, do, under no circumstances should you do that unless you need to. Because what you're opening yourself up to is a whole host of challenges and it's not worth it. And as long as that's the case right now, you're not going to see people willingly bringing inventory to market for tenants. And that's the, the chokehold we have right now. No, it, you know, I agree with that. And, you know, the one, the one part I'm going to go backwards on one of your comments, though, is that I think that all landlords should have a slush fund, a contingency mm-hmm. fund in place in case a tenant doesn't pay. But I don't think that should be endless. You know, so when I, when I talk to landlords, I say, look, make sure... You know, if you're going to be self-managing, make sure you at least have like a three to six month slush in case something goes awry with your tenant. But in the same breath, I don't think it's fair at all for the LTB to turn around and push it to eight months. No, it's not fair at all. And then if, if a mom and pop landlord perhaps didn't fill out the paperwork exactly and and we've heard this, by the way, in ways in, in the situation. We actually heard it. No, we actually heard the mediator turn around and said, if you can't be a professional and fill out the paperwork correctly, then you shouldn't be a landlord. And I take exception to that because the forms are very similar in some cases. And what you know, they'll be quick to to let a tenant off. But they're not there and won't do the, they won't say, okay, well, listen, fill out the form for this as a landlord and then we can proceed. They make you start all over again. I had someone write, I wrote a column on the landlord tenant board and I said, if we have a housing crisis, this is the first stop. This is what we should be looking at. And someone sent me an email saying he owned an investment property. He's a professional, has not paid rent, has not been paid rent, I'm sorry, for 14 months. He had a hearing went to it was uncontested judge ruled in his favor you know tenant must leave somehow the paperwork with that order the eviction order got lost he's back to the front of the line again needs a whole new hearing and this is the stuff that's happening and 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 as long as that's the case and there's and this guy this man emailed me said i'm desperate i don't know what to do i've called them i've called my mp i've called my mpp i've called my counselor no one cares because the idea is that all landlords are greedy and all tenants are hard done by. And that's an unfortunate reality that that's just not the case. Um, are there exceptions to both of those things? Absolutely. But when you're throwing things out because a landlord paperwork was filed on the 19th instead of the 17th, that's not the spirit of what we're doing here. And I think that that's the issue is you have tenants who now know, you know what? There, there's this rule of thumb, do not teach your landlord what the proper process is. If you know they filed that incorrectly, you let the court tell them. 
And that's the problem is as long as that's the case, it's not like the government is building rental housing. No. We need to incentivize each other to do it. And there is no incentive right now. It, it's it's shark-filled waters. Yeah. Well, Bryn, with that, um, <laughs> you know what? I think, uh, Sunshine. as usual, thank you for joining me. Uh, great having you here. And look forward to having you come back real soon. And we can continue our rants. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you so much. And folks, when we come back, I have a special surprise for you. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Welcome, your host for this evening, the simple investor, Todd C. Slater. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming tonight. I'm really, really excited about having another seminar. Big, big welcome. I do have a special welcome for the simple seminar tonight. As everybody knows from our advertising, we've been featuring a very, very special group of people, and I just wanted to put our hands together for our first responders, and thank you, everybody, who are first responders that's joining us tonight. As well, everybody that's joining us via webinar, just a huge shout out. There's been so much that you've done for us over the years, and I'm hoping a little bit later on, you're gonna realize how important investment real estate can be to you, your future, your family, everything else. Tonight, I'm hoping to get across the point of why we do this. Why do we invest in real estate? I've got some real estate investors here. Fortunately for me, they do come and they do join us. Some of the things that this seminar is not, it's not get rich quick. Investment real estate, you hang on to it. You don't flip it. The other thing is speculation. Right now, I can guarantee you, a year ago, people that bought are really regretting it today, especially if it's exactly a year ago today. February prices, wow, you know what? If you were thinking of flipping it, uh, you missed on that one. I also don't have anything else to sell you. Tonight is just gonna be us having a conversation, trying to figure out why does investment real estate make so much sense. You'll notice that I use the word simple a lot. I think everybody wants to make it difficult so they can justify their courses, why they sell things for so much. With the world the way it has changed, we have to start thinking further ahead. And the idea of owning investment real estate today, does everybody know what the vacancy rate right now is in Ontario? The lowest it's ever been. Right now in Toronto proper, it's less than 1%. And yet, the government wants to shame you, the landlord. They call you greedy. They call you all sorts of names. And that's the problem because you're not. You're the one who stuck your neck out to buy the property. You're the ones that are suffering with the interest rates. Question for you, where are interest rates going? Anybody know? So the gentleman said, just for you, you listeners at home, when we talk about interest rates, uh, so far we've got it's gonna keep going up, we've got it's gonna level off, we've got it's gonna stay level, and then maybe go down in two years, is that what you think? There is actually some math that I'm gonna share with you and we can talk about because interest rates might have peaked. And then we've got to take a look at when and how they move. Don't forget, when you talk about interest rates, there's two interest rates you need to talk about. There's the Bank of Canada, and then there's the bond rate. The Bank of Canada reflects the variable rate mortgages. The bond rate is the fixed rate mortgages. So that's that three and five year term. And that's the one that we're going to have a good discussion with. Now, inflation. Everybody knows it's completely government controlled. So inflation was artificially pushed and no, I'm not one of these naysayers and I'm not one of these crackpots, the numbers are the numbers. 
government controlled, it's all from oil, right? So that if you turn around cost of goods, inflate it, then cost of goods go up, and then everybody has to rush. And so the government can control inflation. The head of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklin, Tiff actually said, if we're going to raise rents, we're going to just do it a little bit at a time, and we're going to give you lots and lots of notice. This was November, December, January, and then, of course, they lied. What they did was they forced Canadians to take more debt because we were told, convinced, for sure, banks going to be really easy on us, quarter point at a time. So that gave you lots of time to lock in, right? And they never sat there and said, out of eight meetings in 2022, seven of them were going to raise, and they did not say that they would do a half a point, three quarters a point, or a full point. They lied. So here we are saying, okay, let's borrow money, let's get into real estate, let's take mortgages, let's leave them variable. I mean, if you locked into a fixed rate mortgage last February, you're laughing right now. You have five years of clear sailing. But what they did say was they think they're going to freeze it for a little while. They just want the inflation to decrease. They want to have the effect that they were looking for. They're trying to throw us into a recession, make you bleed. Okay, and once you turn around and they start saying uncle, then what they're going to do is they then are going to turn around and say, oh, you've been good people, you don't borrow as much, we'll give you a quarter point off. That's probably later in the year. But here's what happens. They call it an inverted curve. The actual fixed rate mortgage is going to be lower than the variable. What's going to happen is the fixed rate mortgage is going to start to drop. And you can lock in a five-year at a lower rate than you would have a variable. So we will see that. It is going to happen. Probably by the spring, we'll start seeing that little bit of discount happening. Is that what we're projecting? Not promising, but projecting or hoping, yes. So do you know that the game of Monopoly is actually a really great example of investment real estate? See, the funny thing is, the inventors of Monopoly didn't actually realize that this is showing people where they need to buy real estate. Mediterranean Avenue, Baltic Avenue, or Boardwalk and Park Place. Who's for Boardwalk and Park Place? Who's for Mediterranean and Baltic? Wow, for you at home, Mediterranean and Baltic so far is the winner. A lot of times people will say, it's the roll of the dice, isn't it? Or, for those of you that have become regulars playing the game of Monopoly, how many times did you ever land on Boardwalk? Not very many, right? One of the reasons why, and most people don't realize, that the majority of the chance and community chess cards tell you to go directly to go. So automatically, you're already bypassing those two properties. The other ones keep moving you around. If you always get to go, that means what? We need to buy the stuff you're going to land on the most. Boardwalk and Park Place are the most expensive places on the board. If you land on them, you own them, it costs you a whole lot of money to get to a hotel, doesn't it? But when you buy the lower-priced stuff, hmm, I think there's a theme going here, you can turn around, and as you see, if you want to win the game of Monopoly, as in real estate investment, own the first two rows. Why? Because they're the least expensive. You can put your hotels on them immediately. More people will land on those on the board than any other place. About 75% of the time, you're going to land there. It's not as much as you think when you sit there and say, yes, but it goes around. No, no. It keeps pushing you the other way. It keeps making you jump past that last row automatically. 
You barely touch that last row. In fact, if you ever played the game of Monopoly, the last group of cards to be able to buy is normally the green guys, that short line. Nobody ever lands in a short line because they keep getting kicked past it. In the end, what ends up happening is everybody lands on the first two rows. So when you start the game of Monopoly, you start at go. And you go this way and that way. Let's say you own the first two, then you can put a house on it. If you own the next group, or the next group, or the next group, a lot of people are going to land there. That's the thing about Monopoly. Let's spin it to be real estate investment. How many people can afford $5,000 a month rent? How many people can afford $1,000 to $1,500? A lot more. So like the game of Monopoly, more people land on the affordable properties. And guess where that is? Outer markets, right? We have over 3,000 doors in the outer markets, where our average rent is probably about $1,300, and you can get positive cash flow. This is the magic. Rents that are affordable. All we want to do is keep focusing on what's really important. You, the investor, making sure that you've got decent, supportive, cash-flowing properties, and that is our goal here. So once again, don't forget, you're with that sheet of paper. You want an appointment with me? You want to have a meeting with me? By the way, you can click, log, log on it, and uh, that's pretty much it. I just want to thank everybody for coming out tonight. It has been an honor and a pleasure, and it's great to see everybody. Well, that was a lot of fun, and hopefully you got a few answers on what is going on in the world of investment real estate. Listen, earlier I had Bryn Lackey join me uh, from Chestnut Park, and uh, obviously great to have Bryn on. We could sit there and talk for hours. So I do want to thank her for, for coming to the studio, as she always does. I do want to thank my producers that, again, keep it simple for me every single week. I've got Omar in the booth. I've got Ian Grant doing the cutting and pasting for me to make sure that we sound right. And most importantly, I want to thank you for tuning in because, again, hopefully you'll make us the number one real estate talk show as you did last year in 2022. And I look forward to coming back next Sunday as usual. And it will be noon. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. You've been listening to Simply Real Estate right here on News Talk 1010.